Play's Ark by Octavia Butler, read by Fleabag Anus. Past seven. Mm. A few minutes of careful listening told him that there were seven people sharing the isolated wooden stone house with him. There were two adult sons and a 20-year-old daughter, who had spent the night in Barstow. There was their mother, who had brought food, and who had been kind, and the sons knew what young wives, who were eager for the separate houses to be finished. There was the white-haired patriarch of the household, a stern man who believed in an outdated, angry god, and knew how to use a shotgun. He reminded himself of the last when he met the daughter, Mida, nameless. Mida introduced herself by walking into the room he had just been given, just as he pulled on a borrowed pair of pants. And instead of retreating when she saw that he was dressing, she stayed to watch. He was so glad she was not the woman of the night before, the woman whose scent had frozen him outside her window, that her brazenness did not bother him. This one's scent was far more interesting than a man's would have been, but she had not yet reached the dangerous time in her cycle. She was big, like the mother, perhaps six feet tall, and stocky where her mother was becoming old woman thin. Mida was brown-haired, heavily tanned and strong-looking, probably used to hard work. She stared at him curiously and was unable to conceal her disappointment at his thin, wiry body. He didn't blame her. He was disgusted with his appearance himself, though he knew how deceptive it was. He had been good-looking once. Women had never been a problem for him. This woman, however, was a problem already. Her expression said that she recognised him. That was completely unexpected, that someone in this isolated place would keep up with current events enough to know what one of 14 astronauts looked like. Unfortunately, his face had changed less than the rest of him. It had always been thin, and with the arc returning, there must have been a great rebroadcasting and republishing of old pictures. This woman had probably just seen several of them in Barstow. How have you lost so much weight? she asked, as he pulled on her shirt. The clothing belonged to Gabriel Boyd, the father of the family. He was thin too, though not quite as tall. The pants were too short. You look like you haven't eaten for weeks, Mida said. I am hungry, he admitted. My mother says you just ate enough for two people. He shrugged. He was still hungry. He was going to have to do something about it soon. We don't have a video phone, she said, or a telephone, or even a radio. That's okay, Eli said. I don't want to call anyone. Why not? she asked. He did not answer. What do you want? she asked. I want you to get out of here before your father or your, one of your brothers gets the wrong idea. This is my room, Mida said. That did not surprise him. The room did not look as though it belonged to a young woman. There was no clothing in sight, no perfume or makeup, no frills, but it smelled of her, and the bed smelled of her. I was in Barstow with my brothers overnight, she said. There are some, some supplies my brothers can't be trusted to buy, even with a list. She gave him a sad smile. So I went to the big city. Barstow? he asked. Like most desert towns, it had been water short and shrinking for years. Not that it had ever been big. Anything bigger would be too sinful, she said. It might tempt me or contaminate me or something. You know, I've only been to LA twice in my life. He wiped his wet face with dripping hands. She did not know how she tempted him to how she tempted him to contaminate her. His compulsion was to touch her, take her hands perhaps, scratch or bite her if she pulled away. Sex would have been very satisfying with her too, though not as satisfying as when she reached her fertile time. She was not the kind of woman who would have attracted him in any way before. 
Now all a woman had to do to attract him was to smell and contaminate it. He looked away from her, sweat soaking into his borrowed clothing. You're not missing anything by keeping away from the cities, he said. He had been born in a so-called middle-class residential area of that vast, deadly Los Angeles that she wanted more of, and if not for his grandfather, he would have probably already died there. Many of the people he had grown up with had died of too much. L.A., a girl like this one, not pretty, eager for attention and excitement, would not survive a year in L.A. We barely have running water here, she grumbled. Fool, she had clean, sweet, well water here free for the taking. In sinking LA, she would have had a limited amount of flat, desalinized, purified, expensive ocean water. In LA, you could tell how little money a man had by how bad he smelled. We don't know when you're well off, he told her, but if you're crazy enough to want to try city life, why don't you just move? She shrugged, looking surprisingly young and vulnerable. I'm afraid, she admitted. I guess I haven't cut the umbilical cord yet, but I'm working on it. She fell silent for a moment and then said, Asa? He looked at her sidelong. Girl, even my enemies have more sense than to call me that. Elias, then, she said, smiling. Eli, he said. Okay. You tell anyone? No, she said. That was true. She was enjoying having a secret too much to give it away. Now we had to keep her quiet. Why are you here? she asked. Why aren't you being debriefed or paraded down some big city street or something? Why was he not in isolation, she meant. Why was he not waiting and contending with a misery no one but him could understand? while a dozen doctors discovered what a dangerous man he was. Why was he not dead in an escape attempt? And considering the loss of the ship, its wealth of data, its frozen dead crew and its diseased living crew, debriefing was a laughably mild name for what he was would have been put through. What's the matter? Ida asked softly. She had a big voice, not intended for speaking softly, but she managed. She'd come closer. God help her. Why didn't she just go away? Why didn't he order her away or leave himself? He touched his arm. Are you all right? she asked. His body went on automatic. Helplessly, he grasped her hand. He managed not to scratch her. He tried to feel good about that until he saw that she had a small abrasion on the back of her hand. That was enough. His touch probably would have been enough anyway. Eventually, she would have eaten something with that hand or scratched her lip or wiped her mouth or scratched or licked her hand to quiet the slight itching sensation contamination sometimes produced. And the disease organism could live on the skin for hours in spite of normal haphazard hand washing. Any person he touched was almost certainly doomed in one way or another. Why are your hands wet? she asked. And when he did not answer, she examined his hands. He had expected her to drop them in disgust, but she did not seem disgusted. She was a big, strong girl. Maybe she could be saved. Maybe he could save her if he stayed. He remembered vainly trying to save his wife, Lisa. She had been a short, slender woman with no weight to lose, barely big enough to qualify this for the space programme. The disease had eaten her alive. She'd been one of the mission's two MDs, however, and before she died, she and Grove Kenyon, the other doctor, had discovered that the disease organism caused changes that could be beneficial if the host survived its initial onslaught. Surviving hosts became utterly resistant to more conventional diseases and more efficient at performing certain specialised functions. Only the toxin excreted by the disease organism was life-threatening. Not surprisingly, the human body had no defence against it, but in time, the organism changed, adapted, and chemically encouraged its host to adapt. Its byproducts ceased to be toxic to its host. 
and the host sees to react as strongly as to increase sexual needs and heightened sensory awareness, inevitable effects of the disease. The needed time was bought by new organisms of the same disease, new organisms introduced after significant adaptation had occurred. The new unadapted organisms quickly spent themselves neutralising the toxic wastes of the old. Thus, the new organisms had to be replaced frequently. The host body was a hostile environment for them, an environment already occupied, claimed, chemically marked by others of their kind. Their toxin neutralisation was merely their reflexive effort to survive in that hostile environment. For the original invading organisms had too much of a start, or if they were not well started, if the new organisms were introduced too soon, those new organisms simply became part of the original invasion, and the host, the patient, was no better, no worse. The meagre statistics provided by the crew and the few experimental animals they managed to raise from frozen embryos seem to support these findings. All four of the surviving crew members had been reinfected several times. There were no survivors among the first crew members stricken. They had been isolated and restrained. Their vital functions had been continually monitored and restored when they failed, but finally their brains had ceased to function. Reinfection was the answer then, or an answer, a partial answer. Without it, everyone died. With it, some lived. Lisa had died. Mida was obviously stronger. Perhaps she could live. <clears throat> Mida brought Blake his bag when he asked for it and permitted him to examine her. She even permitted him to cleanse the scratches she'd made on his arm and face, though she warned it would do no good. We had never done any good before when someone is infected, she said. The organisms were aggressive and fast. He had the disease now. She or someone else had found and sabotaged his panic button with one of the new permanent glues. With these, permanent meant permanent. He could not use the bag to call for help. Otherwise, the bag was intact. For Kira's sake, in particular, it was one of his best bags. His scope would probably have given him a look at the Clayzark organism, even if it was as small as Mida has said. He needed all the information he could get before he made his escape. It was not only a matter of wanting him to pass the information on, he also needed to know of any of the weaknesses that these people had. They were too good to be true in literally every way except appearance. He had to find something he could use against them. I could have used you when my children were born, Mida told him as he took her blood pressure. Didn't you have a doctor? he asked. He checked her pulse. No, she said. Just Eli and Lorene, my sister-in-law. We don't bring anyone here if we don't plan to keep them, and I didn't dare to go to a hospital. Imagine how many people I'd infect there. Not if you told them the truth, he said. She watched as he drew blood from her left arm. It went directly into the analyzer, as with all her other specimens. They'd put me in a goddamn cage, she said. They'd put my kids in one, too. They were born with the disease, you know. Did they have any special problems, he asked. She turned her head to stare directly at him. Not a one, she said. She made no effort to conceal the fact that she was lying. And what about you? Blake asked gently. Easy births? Yeah, she said. Her defensiveness vanished. But the first one, the first one really surprised me. I mean, I was scared. I, I expected to be in agony. And I don't handle real pain that well. But the kid just popped out with no trouble at all. It just felt like cramps. You were lucky there was no emergency, Blake said. Can I see your children? Not until you're safe, Blake, she said. Safe? 
when you've been sick and gotten well again, that's what I mean. And then we'll have nothing to worry about and we'll show you anything that you want. He frowned. Do you imagine I'd hurt a child? He asked. Probably not, she said. But you're at the seeking weakness stage and Jacob and Joseph would be a hell of a weakness. If you used them, we'd have to kill you. And we want you alive, Blake. He looked away from her in growing desperation. They really were too good, always a step ahead. How many times had they done this? Abducted people, made them vanish from the world outside. He had to beat them at a game they knew all too well already. But how? Maida rubbed his arm with a wet hand. Look, she said, it isn't so bad here. You can do a lot of good, maybe more good than you could do anywhere else. You can help us prevent an epidemic. It's only a matter of time before your disease gets out of hand, he said. We've kept that from happening for more than four years, she said. Yet it could happen tomorrow, he said. No, she said. She got up and began to pace. I can't really make you understand till you felt it, but we'd go crazy if we were caged. We'd probably kill ourselves trying to escape. The compulsion keeps us on a pretty thin edge as it is. <clears throat> Eli says we're holding on to our humanity by our fingernails. I'm not sure we're holding on to it at all. In some ways, I'm more realistic than he is, but maybe we need a little of his idealism. God knows how he's kept it. She glanced at Blake. He's my kid's father, you know. I guess, Blake said. He helps us hold on, even with all we're holding on to is an illusion. Take that illusion away and what's left is something you won't want to deal with, you'll see. If your veneer of humanity is that thin, Blake said, it's only a matter of time before someone finds it too thin. And if what you've told me about the disease is true, one person could infect hundreds and those thousands, those hundreds could infect thousands, all before the first victim began to show symptoms and realised they were sick. Your estimate is low, she said. Now do you see why you have to stay here? You could become that one person. He did not argue with her. He would escape and go to a hospital. That was all. I'd like you to undress, he said. He just collected a little of her sweat and taken, almost painlessly, a minute specimen of her flesh. The analyzer found something incomprehensible in both, probably the same something it had found in her blood and urine. Unidentifiable microbes, the small screen said. It was able to show him small, spider-like organisms in her flesh, some of them caught in the act of reproducing along with her cells, as part of her cells. They were not viruses. According to the computer, they were more complete, independent organisms, yet they had made themselves at home in the human cells in a way that should not have been possible, like plasmids invading and making themselves at home in bacteria. But they were hardly plasmids, solitary rings of DNA. They were more complex organisms that had sought out higher game than bacteria and managed to combine with it without killing it. They had changed it, however, altered it subtly, slightly, cell by cell, in the most basic possible way, they had tampered with Mida's genetic blueprint. They had left her no longer human. The ones that live in the brain don't have little cells. Uh, cilia, I mean, Mida said over his shoulder. What? Eli told me that they get into the brain cells too. It sounds frightening, but there isn't anything we can do about it. I guess they have to reach the brain to change us, so. She did not know how changed she was. Could there be any hope of reversing such elemental changes? There must be, for his daughter's sake. Eli and I used to talk about it a lot, she said. He wanted me to know everything he knew, in case anything happened to him. He said his wife and the other doctor did autopsies on the crew members who died before them. They found little round organisms in the brains of every one of them. 
Rabies again, Blake muttered. But no, rabies was only a virus, preventable and curable. Eli's wife tried to make antibodies, Mida said. It didn't work. I don't remember what else she tried. I didn't understand anyway. But nothing worked except reinfection. And they found out about that by accident. And it works better person to person than person to syringe. Maybe that's just psychological, but we don't care. We'll use anything that works. That's why I'm here with you. You're here to try and make me a good carrier, he said. She shrugged. You'll be there or you'll die, and I'd rather live myself. There was another answer. There had to be, but he could not find it out only with his bag, but others. Researchers with lab computers would sooner or later come up with the answers. First, though, they had to be made aware of the questions. He turned to look at Mida and saw that she had stripped. Surprisingly, she looked less scrawny without her clothing, more like the human female that she was not. What could her children be like? She smiled. All my clothes are too big, she said. I put them on and I look like a collection of sticks, I know, but maybe now I'll buy a few new things I'm in town. He ignored the obvious implication, but could not ignore the way she kept reading him. He became irrationally afraid that she was reading his mind and that he would never be able to keep an escape plan from her. He tried to shake off the feeling as he proceeded with the examination. She said nothing more. He got the impression that she was sparing him, humouring him. He asked to examine others in the community when he finished with her, but she was not ready to share him with anyone else. Start checking them tomorrow if they'll let you, she said. You'll smell different then, less seductive. Seductive? he asked. I mean, you'll smell more like one of us. Nobody will take any special pleasure in touching you then. She had dressed again in her loose, ugly clothing. It's sexual, she said. Or rather, it feels sexual. Touching you is almost as good as screwing. It would be good even if I didn't like you. If not for people like you, people we have to catch and keep. I could never control myself enough to go into town. With no outlet, it gets um, painful and crazy, sort of frenzied when there are lots of unconverted people around. I have dreams about suddenly finding myself, myself moving through a crowd, maybe on a big city street. Moving through a crowd where I have no choice but to keep touching people. I don't even know whether to call it a nightmare or not. I'm, I'm on an automatic and it just, it's just happening. You'd like it to happen, he said, watching her. Pig shit, she replied, abruptly angry. If I wanted it to happen, it would happen. I'd get in my car and I'd drive. I could infect people in towns from here to New York. And I'd do exactly that if I ever had to leave this place. There would be no one to help me or to stop me. She hesitated and then sat down on the bed beside him. He managed not to recoil when she took his hand. He was getting information from her. Let her touch him as long as she kept talking. We've got to understand, she said. It's really hard on us the way we limit our growth. We can only do it because we're so isolated. But if you escaped with or without your kids, we'd have to escape too before you could send people here to corral us. I don't know where we'd go, but chances are we'd have to split up. Now you imagine, for instance, Ingraham got out there on his own. He was highly strung before and damned undisciplined. He doesn't shake because there's more wrong with him than the rest of us. He shakes because he's holding himself back almost all the time. He respects Eli and he loves Lupe. She's going to have his kid. But you force him out of here and all by himself and he'll start an epidemic you won't believe. And you're saying that'll be all my fault, Blake said angrily. 
She was boxing him in. Everything she said was intended to close another exit. We'll do anything to avoid being locked up, she said. I'll do anything to keep my sons from being taken from me. Nobody would take your... Shut your mouth, she said. They take them. They treat them like things. And if they killed them, accidentally or deliberately, it would just be one of their problems solved. Mida, listen. So if you're afraid of an epidemic doctor, she said, then doctor, don't you even think about leaving us. Even if you spread the word, you can't possibly stop us. She switched tracks abruptly. I'm starving. Do you want anything to eat? He was disorientated for a, for a moment. Food? he asked. We eat a lot, you'll see, she said. What if he didn't? he asked, immediately alert. I mean, I could have I couldn't have put away the meal I just saw you eat only a few hours ago. What if you just ate normally? We do eat normally, she said. For well, for us. You know what I mean, Blake said. Yeah, I know, she said. You're still seeking weakness. Well you found one. We eat a lot. Now what are you gonna do? Destroy our food supply? She produced the key from somewhere, seemingly by magic. Her hands were actually quicker than his eyes. Don't even think about doing anything to the food, she said. Someday I'll tell you how people like you smell to my kids. She let herself out and slammed the door behind her. She returned sometime later, bringing him a ham sandwich and a fruit salad. I'd like to see my daughters, he told her. I'll see, she said. Maybe I can bring you one of them for a few minutes. Her cooperativeness pleased but did not surprise him. She had children of her own but she, and she could see that his concern was genuine. There was no reason for her to find out. That, that, there was no reason for her to find that concern suspect. He was lying down, tired and frightened, hanging on to the bare bones of an escape plan when Eli brought Kyra in. Kira seemed calm. Eli left her without saying a word. He locked her in and possibly stood outside listening. Are you alright? Blake asked. She answered the question he intended rather than the one he had asked. He hasn't touched me, she said. She did not sit down, but stood in the middle of the room and looked at Blake. He looked back, realising for her sake that he could not touch her either. Such a terrible, simple thing. He could not touch her. He said Mida scratched you, she whispered. Blake nodded. He told me about the disease and where he got it. I didn't know what to think. Do you believe him? Her, in my case. Blake stared through the bars of the window into the desert night. I believe. Maybe I shouldn't, but I do. Rain always says that I'll believe anything, Kira said. At first I was afraid to believe this. I do now, though. <clears throat> Have you seen Rain? No. Daddy? He looked away from the big, bright full moon and met her eyes and saw that in a moment she would come to him to seize on her disease. No, he said sharply. Why? she demanded. What difference does it make? Someone's going to touch me sooner or later anyway, and even if they don't, I've probably got the disease, from the salad or the bread or the furniture or the dishes. What's the difference? She wiped away tears angrily. She tended to cry when she got upset, whether she wanted to or not. Why hasn't he touched you? Blake said. She looked at Blake, looked away, and looked away. Eli likes me, I think, and he's afraid that he'll kill me. I wonder how long that will stop him, Blake asked. Not long. She said, he obviously feels terrible. Sooner or later, he's just going to grab me. Blake opened up his bag again and turned it on, keyed in a prescription form. Are you locked up? He typed. Are your windows barred? She shook her head, mouthed. No bars. Then you can escape, he typed. Alone? She mouthed. She shook her head. You must, he typed. At 2am. I'll try. I want you with me. He put the bag away. Aloud, he said. I can't help you, Kerry. 
I know, she whispered, most of the time. I'm not even worried about myself. I'm worried about you and Rain. I don't even know where Rain is. He began typing signlessly again. Then break free alone. They'll think you're helpless. They'll be careless with you. She shook her head as she read the words. I can't, she mouthed. I can't. Are you having any pain? He asked aloud. Did you take your medicine? No pain, she said softly. I had some, but I told Eli and he got my medicines from the car. He wore what he called his town gloves. She glanced at the door. He said if he wasn't help helpful. He said if he wasn't careful, he could just transmit the disease just by paying for supplies. They all have to wear special gloves when they're in town. Yet they deliberately spread the disease to people like us, Blake said. He wiped everything he had typed and began on a clean form. You must escape, he typed. There's an epidemic brewing here. We must give warning, get treatment, he typed. She was shaking her head again. God, why hadn't Maida sent Rain to him? Rain would be afraid too, but that wouldn't stop her. Even if I fail, he typed, you must take the car and go, or we could all die. Do you remember how to start the car without the key? She typed. She nodded. Then go, he typed, send back help, give warning. Tears ran down her face, but she did not seem to notice them. He spoke aloud with painfully calculated brutality. Mida told people with serious... Mida told me that people with serious injuries die of the disease. She's seen them die. She didn't say anything about people with serious illnesses, but Kerry, she didn't have to. He gave her a long, hard look, trying to reach her. She knew that he was right. She knew that he wanted to, and she wanted to please him, but she had over had to overcome her fear. She knew he was right. She wanted to please him, but she had to overcome her own fear. Blake typed, Sooner or later, Eli will touch you, at least. She read the words without responding. Be near the Raganier tonight, he typed, at two. Kira swallowed and nodded once. At that moment, there was a sound at the door. Instantly, Blake shut off the computer, automatically wiping the prescription form and everything he had typed. He closed the bag and turned to face the door, just as Eli opened it. Blake looked at Kira, aching to hug her. He felt that he was about to lose her in one way or another, but he could not touch her.